Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, how is your day going? I hope it's amazing. I have an awesome guest today. Many of you probably already know him intimately, or at least you feel like you do, because you've listened to his podcast. It's Rich Roll. So Rich is the host of the very popular Rich Roll podcast. Uh, That may be actually what he's best known for these days, but he's also an author who just released a new edition of his book, Finding Ultra, which I'd say it chronicles his tumultuous path. Like he's really been up and down from awkward kid to national level swimmer uh, to Stanford. And it was during college when he started drinking, which really became the next chapter in his life, even while going to law school at Cornell and starting work as a lawyer in the entertainment industry. But Rich eventually went to rehab and got sober. Um, and he, But, you know, at the same rate, while that was an incredible thing for him, and we talk a lot about it today, he still wasn't healthy. So it was the night before he turned 40 that he finally had a wake-up call and realized that he truly needed to overhaul the rest of his life. And that's when he became vegan. He started exercising and he just started studying what it would take to truly live his potential. And that's when the rich we know today began to emerge. So in today's interview, we talk about some of those things and then many other things. It's an awesome episode with an awesome person. I know you will love it. Before we start, I have to share this really cool thing that my yoga instructor shared with us the other day. So he recently went to a yoga and meditation retreat and at one of the classes, his instructor started by saying, there are really only three questions that matter. The first question is, where are you? And the answer is here. The second question is, what time is it? And the answer is now. And the third question is, where do you live? And the answer is in my heart. So the idea is that if you're present and true to the moment you're experiencing, you will be able to attain like your ultimate fullness or completeness or whatever you might call it. So the next day he saw the teacher and he told him how much he enjoyed the questions. And the teacher said, well, actually there's a fourth question, but many people aren't ready for it. What day is it? And the answer is the best day of my life. So when he told us this, you know, it just blew my mind a little. Maybe your minds are blown and it can sound a little like trite when things aren't going your way. But when he told that story, I started crying a little bit in yoga 
because I had been having this frustrating day literally due to technical difficulties that caused everything I was doing to be annoying and delayed. And um, this concept just sort of hit me in the gut because that was just such a stupid thing to be caught up in negatively. And while I do think that some days are better than others, when you are truly living fully, I can understand this concept and totally embrace it. And I, I hope that you might think about this a bit too. And it's a cool story to start with because today's guest, Rich, is um, a guy who's been known to tap into his spiritual side too while balancing the athlete, the husband, the father, and the entrepreneur inside him. I'm not a shy person, as you know, um, and so I recently decided that if I want something to happen, I will move forward to make it happen. And I've been really excited to someday interview Rich Roll because I literally just wanted to have a conversation with him. So I decided to eliminate the someday from that statement. Um, I sent him a note and he said, sure, yeah. So what day is it? It's the best day of my life. It's the best day of Rich's life. It's the best day of your life every single day. Um, Also, before we start, I want to share a few other really cool things while you think about how this is the best day of your life. First, Skirt Sports is killing it this season with product launches. So many of you know Skirt Sports is a company I founded in 2004 because I wanted something that didn't exist, something that was cute and performed and had comfort for women. And uh, I created the first ever running skirt and it's been many years now. So we launch new collections every season and, and this is the start of the spring season even though it's freaking snowing and 14 degrees. So anyway, we have new fabrics, we have new colors, we have new prints and many of our best-selling styles like those original skirts I did create all those years ago. But we also just launched a collection for women who wear sizes 1X, 2X, and 3X, sometimes called Plus Collection. Um, We just have extra sizes and we're launching our new active swim collection at the end of February. So get ready because every woman needs a swimsuit every year. And swimsuits suck to buy and try on, and our swimsuits make life better, and they inspire confidence. So check out the new spring collection at skirtsports.com and use the code RUN20 for 20% off. I'm so proud of this brand I created. I will never stop sharing the love. Uh, Next up, my website just got a revamp so that it's more of a pod-centric site, making it easier for you to find episodes and search topics. Um, While many of you subscribe directly from iTunes or Stitcher, if you go to my site, you can check out the full show notes, which give more depth to the episodes and sometimes even special deals. So head over to NicoleDeBoom.com. Let me know what you think and if there's anything else you want to see from me on my website. And finally, I launched a Patreon account, which allows you to support my podcast with any level of donation you feel is right. I did not create levels or suggest tiers, um, so it's up to you. If you feel that this work, this podcast is adding value to your life, now you can support it. Most patrons, that's what they call donors, are supporting at five or 10 bucks a month, which is so awesome and makes me feel so incredibly honored. I put out three to four episodes a month, just so you can do the math (laughs) to go. Um, and support me, head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Nicole DeBoom. 
And you want to know who originally told me about Patreon and suggested I start an account a while back? Yep. The one and only Rich Roll. You like that? You see how we just came full circle? So there it is, you guys. It's time. It's time to get Rich Roll on the show. Okay. Let's restart. Okay. (laughs) All right, right. Rich. This is so cool. So you're like little Mr. Busy Man. You've had a lot going on in the past five years. And, um, you know, my listeners know you because you're like this super famous real person. Like, how did that happen? Who knows? It's like one step at a time, right? And I read that because I have your new book. I have editions one and two. And you basically say at the end that it was like, one thing, one little thing at a time that kind of turned you into this person that you that you are today. And what you're mostly known as is the guy who gets to interview these really incredible guests and pull the stories out of them, but you rarely get to sit on the other side of the mic. So I thought maybe we could talk about some of those things you don't get to talk about today. If you're down with that. Totally. I love um, it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, and it's weird to hear you say like, oh, you're this super famous person. Like, I don't think that that's true, nor do I think of myself in that regard. Um, and it's weird. It's a, it's a weird position to be in where suddenly like people are looking to you for advice about how they should spend their time during their day. Like I would have never predicted that the things that I've done would deposit me into this place, but it is true. And so um, I had, you know, that was one of the reasons of redoing my book and, and sharing some, you know, kind of practical tools and things that have been helpful to me. But at the same time, I, I would say that admittedly it's, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Like I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm some kind of self-help guru. Like I just try to, I share my story and I tried to do it transparently. And then I started this podcast and I host um, people that inspire me and I have them share their stories. But I'm not in the in the habit of trying to tell people how they should live their lives or what they should or they shouldn't do. I'm a firm believer in just sharing the human experience and all its messiness um, is the best way to create connection with other people. And perhaps light a spark in them that will then empower them to go about um, their lives in a new way and, and, and perhaps set forth a new trajectory for themselves. Um, well, that being, go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I was, I was going to say, like, that's what I love about you, and I think that's what most people find really relatable and refreshing because you're not trying to hide anything, and you didn't, like graduate from college and law school and you're like, now I'm going to be famous and like, just take the steps towards doing that. You know, definitely not. it was like through being totally human and then being totally out there with all of the shit that you are now someone that people look up to because they want to be like that. They don't, they want to let go of the stuff that has held them back or brought them shame in their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, vulnerability is, something I think, you know, we were all raised to, to kind of avoid. We've considered it, you know, we consider it a weakness. Especially men. Yeah, especially men. And I think reclaiming that and redefining it for ourselves and, 
translating it more into uh, a tool to empower ourselves is a really potent thing. And, and, you know, that's a big part of my story. I mean, I, I remember vividly when I was writing the first edition of Finding Ultra back in like 2011, uh, you know, I, I had a very strong sense that the only reason anyone would be interested in anything that I was writing was going to be directly related to, to how open and honest and vulnerable I was willing to be. I mean, I was writing my book at the same time that Scott Jurek was writing his memoir, this, you know, the, the most lauded ultra runner of all time, vegan. I was like, well, if you can read Scott's book, why would you read my book? Like, why do I even have a book deal? I've never even won a race. Like the whole thing was very <laughs> strange. Like, it's not like I'm some world champion athlete. So what is it about my story that could be helpful to other people? And I realized just the humanity of it. And so I had to get into a place of willingness to, to divulge on that level, which is a scary thing. And I remember when I turned the, the manuscript, my first draft over to the editor, I told my wife, I said, I, you know, I hope we were doing the right thing. Like this could be the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Like it's a very raw you know, exposed feeling to, you know, share on that level. And it's something I learned in recovery and I'm more than happy to do it in private or in small groups, but it's another thing to write a book about it. But ultimately, you know, I think that is, you know, is why the book became successful and, and why people, you know, connect with me and my story and the work that I do, because there is an honesty to it. And I think if any, if, if there's anything to be, to be gleaned from that, it's that, you know, we're all human, we're all flawed, we all have these problems. And the more that we can, um, you know, honestly confront them and communicate to others about, you know, what holds us back and our frailties, then the more connected we can become and the more empowered we can become to, to grow and evolve, um, you know, out of these character defects to become more fully actualized. Well, and some people may say, like, there is no such thing as a character defect. So that's interesting, too. Yeah, it's like saying there's no such thing as failure. There's just a growth opportunity. True. Um, yeah. You know, but I think if you're, you know, I, 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 I take that term from, you know, 12 step. And in 12 step, it's like, uh, we're liars, we're thieves, we're, we're not to be trusted. Like, you know, these are, these are firmly character defects, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're opportunities to grow and evolve when we confront them. But I hear what you're saying. I know what you mean. Well, and you know, I think too, though, people, people find others that they relate to, maybe on a higher level who have more, you know, that are out there, like you said, more exposed in different ways. Um, I reached out to you after, you know, I learned more about your story. I related to being a hardcore kid swimmer, uh, going to Ivy league school, uh, mm -hmm. alcoholism, becoming a pro athlete or, you know, consumed by athletics in my adult life. And it's interesting because, you know, through all these phases of life, you, you're learning and growing you're immature then you're mature at some point or maybe always a bit immature i don't know but you you go through cycles and and you hit new sort of levels and i've hit a point in my life where i'm like you know what if i want something something to happen i'm never going to get something if i don't try 
right? So in this case, I reached out to you a while ago and I said, Rich, will you talk to me about my podcast? And you're like, sure. (laughs) This is before like you won't answer people who ask you about like the technical details of your podcast because you you took my call. But, um, you know, I thought it was really cool that you were open to somebody even like me or like anybody who could see you and relate to you on that level. And when I talked to you, I asked you, I, I go, well, was it fun to write your book? Was it fun? You know, it's sort of how I was thinking. And you were like, I wouldn't necessarily call it fun. Uh-huh. And, you know, I just knew, of course, you're referring to the parts of your life that were like really difficult and that created shame and guilt and, and, and addiction was tied into that. And you, you probably cringe still sometimes or maybe no longer thinking about them. And, you know, as you as we learned that you had this uh, process of sort of like burning your, your inventory, burning the, burning it away to truly clear it out. Like I know people listening, sometimes you're out on a freaking run or a hike and some old memory that brings you guilt or shame from college or something hits you and you can't let it go or, or it comes to you when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, Oh, and you can't shake that feeling. Like when you went through that process, did it truly clear all of that out and give you this really awesome starting point? It was definitely cathartic in the same way that doing, you know, an inventory is cathartic, getting it all out on paper and then, you know, releasing it, whether you burn it or whether you share it with another human being. There's something very primal about that that I think, you know, really helps you transcend and grow out of those past patterns but it's not a one and done thing you know it's something that that is a continual process and habit just like you know i'll always be an alcoholic you know i will always have struggles and you know emotional challenges and things that i'm confronting and trying to overcome so it's not like you just do do that inventory or put it all out there and then you can wash your hands and you're like, I'm good. You know, now I walk on water. Like, you know, it's like, that's not human, you know? So, uh, it's a process. Like, I think it was a, you know, it was an amazing growth moment for me, but you know, growth is continual. And, um, if you're not constantly putting pressure on yourself and being, you know, trying to be as honest with yourself about how you're comporting yourself, you can easily lapse back into those behavior patterns that you thought you had mastered. So at least that's my own experience with it. So on that vein, like, are there certain things that you have to work really hard on every day? So like an example, that's really, you know, an easy one to consider. Like when I swim, I don't have to think about swimming. I just swim. You know, I Mm -hmm. might count my strokes or whatever, but I'm just swimming. But when I run, I actually have to think about how my legs are moving and how, you know, running from the core and the hip and where my foot is hitting the ground and all that. I have to think about it. Like those are, that's Mm -hmm. a physical thing, but are there emotional things that you have to work hard on every day still? Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'm fundamentally a selfish person, and if I'm not taking care of myself through a variety of <laughs> things that include exercise and meditation and journaling and being engaged in 12-step, uh, I will uh, quickly become a, a very difficult person to be around. I become aggravated. I become resentful. Uh, I get grouchy. You know, like I, it, it's like 
I don't walk around happy, joyous and free. I, I, you know, my, my natural disposition is not gratitude. Gratitude is a practice for me. It's something I have to work at. Um, these are all things that, uh, don't come naturally to me, you know, and some days it's a struggle. Uh, so there's plenty of things that I have to do every single day just to feel normal. And if I want to feel better than normal, I have to go the extra mile. And with four kids and, you know, a million things coming at me and spinning a bazillion plates, like I don't always tend to myself, you know, in the way that I would if I was a single guy living in the woods, you know, training for ultra marathons all day long by myself. You know what I mean? Well, and to a very few people out there, that sounds amazing. But to most right. people you know, a full life sounds better, a full imperfect life, right? And Of you course, know, with all its messiness. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about this word selfish because, you know, as, a, as an athlete, uh, we tend to maybe be more on the, I don't know if it's selfish or self-centered or like self-centric. I don't know what the right word is, but you know, I've lived that way all my life. And my husband, Tim, was even more so. And I mean, uh -huh. he'll fully admit it now that to win something like the Hawaii Ironman, I mean, you're sacrificing everything, including our marriage, you know, which yeah. had barely scraped through after all over all the years. Um, so I understand this idea of it's really cool, actually, to hear you say, like, I'm inherently a selfish person. And a lot of people would put that put a negative sort of connotation <coughs> to that. But it's not necessarily negative. It's reality. And then it's realizing those basic things you have to do or else you can't be good for anyone else. Right? Yeah, it's a dance. You know, I think it's a delicate tightrope walk dance and if i recall correctly didn't tim when he was at his peak wasn't he living like up the mountain in kona like at, at altitude and then coming down and training and like living in a hut by himself like a very monastic <laughs> lifestyle preparing for that race not quite i think you might be thinking of his uh kind of arch rival and now friend peter reed who oh, I think maybe. did that, but oh, Tim. Maybe I'm thinking of him, yeah. But Tim lived that way with me, like right. <laughs> it's sort yeah. of like you know everything revolved. You have to, yeah, you if do. You, if you want to achieve at the very highest level, then you're going to have to be. Selfish is almost the wrong word because it has such a negative connotation. But you know, you have to live an unbalanced life. And all the signaling that kind of surrounds us these days is about being balanced in every facet of your life. But anybody who's ever done anything extraordinary has lived a life at least temporarily out of balance. Like that's just the yeah. fact of the matter. Um, but when, you know, when your life involves children and competing, you know, things for your, competing interests for your time and energy, uh, you have to figure out how to apportion all of that and you know you can't you, you can't approach your life in that in that monastic regard and i think a lot of um athletes particularly athletes that come from individual type sports like triathlon or swimming struggle with that because they are used to being so in control of their time and life is very simple and then when life gets complicated it's confusing because yeah. you know what i mean Totally. And I, I see like two things. I see 
it's almost like you need an agreement with all the people who care about you that for this period of time in your life or for this pursuit, you need to be the center of the universe and not have to apologize for it. And Mm -hmm. if you're going to tap into your greatest, but you know, the other side of it is, is this like, can you really attain your highest potential if you're not all in? That's a great question. Um, you know, I'm prone to say no. I mean, I think it's contingent upon what it is that you're trying to achieve. If your goal is to become like the best dad and husband, like maybe that involves like a balanced approach to your life in general. But if you have your eyes on some prize, whether it be, you know, athletic or professional, or you're trying to disrupt an industry or something like that, there's a singularity of focus that's required to achieve something like that. And I think it's a bummer that that people that fall into that category uh, are made to feel guilty. I think certain people are that's their that's their destiny. You know, it's like Elon Musk. You know what he's creating is because of a focus that uh, that supersedes you know anything else in his life, and that means that he's probably not living the most balanced life. But the world is a better place with him in it, doing what he's doing. So it's not an easy. Um, question to answer for yourself. And I think the better inquiry, uh, you know, rather than asking ourselves, like, are you balanced or is a balanced life the best approach or being unbalanced and singularly focused? Is that better? Uh, A better question might be, you know, are you present in what you're doing in the moment? Oh, I like that. You're you're good at like turning the question around, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Did I do that? It wasn't intentional. Kind of. <laughs> no, um, I like it though. I think it's you know when we actually have to ask ourselves the root question, that's when it gets more real, and we actually make progress. Well, I will say this back to your your question, like, um, you know, I would be. Would I be a better podcast host if I was a single guy and put all of my time into it? Maybe I could I could do more shows. I could get better guests. I could devote more time and energy to it. But ultimately, I don't think I would be a fully expressed individual. And ultimately, I don't think I would be happy or as fulfilled as I am having other things in my life that bring me joy and purpose. Uh, so, you know, portioning my my energy to things outside of the podcast to my children to you know the physical activities that i like to do to my wife and my relationship and my friends and all of those things uh i think give my life a sense of grounding and um and direction that ultimately make the podcast better uh in the long run Well, and I think, too, grounding has been something that was always a challenge for you, like in your in your olden days. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is really important for you, your family. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a question that I asked Carrie Walsh Jennings when she came on the podcast, um, you know, as a multiple time Olympian uh, who now you know has a marriage that by her own admission is, is tricky and complicated and a bunch of kids. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made that 
well, maybe, you know, she would stand a better chance of winning another gold medal if she just put an iron wall and iron curtain down between her and her family and went off to a training camp for a year and just focused on her volleyball. And she was quick to say that that was not the answer or the solution that having, you know, the grounding that comes with having her family makes her a better player, even if it's taking away, you know, minutes out of the day that, Otherwise, she could spend playing, you know, mastering her discipline. And I think that's a, a really healthy, you know, interesting perspective to have that comes with that only comes with maturity and experience that somebody like her, you know, has. It's true. I like it. And you put her on the spot with that one. That was a good mm-hmm. one. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, as far as uh, being a parent goes, you well, let's actually start with your love life. How's that? It's good. It's, uh, I mean, my wife and I have been together 20 years, almost 20 years at this point. We have a great marriage. Um, you know, we're very different people on the surface, but we share a core set of values. So we're very unified. Um, and, you know, I think we kind of prioritize the same things, even though we spend our time differently. Uh, but it's complicated right now. My oldest. So my two older boys have moved out of the house. They're 22 and 23, and they have an apartment in town now. So it's my wife and our two daughters. Uh, and we live in, you know, way out in the West Valley, like between Malibu and Calabasas, which if you know Los Angeles is kind of the boonies. Uh, but our 15-year-old daughter got into this performing arts high school. It's like the big performing arts high school. She's a visual artist. She spent a year preparing a portfolio to try to get into this school. It was a big deal for her and a big dream. And she made it happen. She got accepted, which is amazing. But the school is east of downtown Los Angeles. It's literally a two-hour drive from our house. So we were compelled, in order to make this work, we had to rent an apartment in downtown Los Angeles. And my wife and I now split our time. Half the week, I'm in Calabasas with my youngest daughter. And then I go downtown and relieve Julie and stay with my older daughter in downtown Los Angeles, pick her up, take her to school, et cetera. So we're both single parenting and like ships passing in the night right now, which has made it challenging and tricky. Um, it's oh, not wow. easy. It's, wow. yeah, it's, it's super, it's super difficult. I essentially only see my wife on the weekends. Uh, But at the same time, we have recalibrated our lifestyle in order to support our daughter in the pursuit of her dream. And not in a way where I want her to feel like we're martyrs or that she should feel guilty about that, but rather to celebrate it like an adventure, you know, because so much of the work that I do and that Julie does is all about trying to help people live more fully actualized lives to, you know, to pursue those dreams and those goals and, and what that entails, like who would who would we be if we if we didn't practice that in our own lives with respect to our children? So this is what we're doing right now. And it's, you know, packed with a lot of difficulties and challenges, not the least of which is, you know, uh, my daughter being, you know, a 15 year old girl. It's not easy to be a 15 year old girl. So, you know, that has its own <laughs> that's its own uh, hornet's nest as well. So, you know, we're doing the best we can, but, uh, but it's tricky. Wow. You know, um, I think I, I appreciate that you're being so open about it too, because 
you know, a lot of people just look at social media and they just want to see the positive things. And um, this is the real life stuff. And I know that I wonder, you know, in my marriage, if Tim and I aren't physically able to connect, like go on day dates to hike and ride bikes or do other things that are even physical together, not to mention like hit the bedroom every once in a while, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it, you know, we lose connection and yeah. then you start to, you know, that's the beginning of the slippery slope, right? right? Right. So are you guys like making it a priority to have some connection throughout the passing in the nights situation? Yeah, I mean, we've always, you know, made sure that we were mindful of paying attention to that. Like, I, you know, I firmly believe that you can't take anything for granted, particularly, especially your your marriage. And I think, you know, I've seen too many friends slip into uh, just a kind of status quo perspective. Uh, and that's, like you said, the beginning of the end. And, you know, most of my friends are divorced. Um, you know, both my wife and I have had plenty of you know, bad relationships leading up to this one. So staying on top of that is super important. And now that we're separated physically for several days a week, you know, it's even more important that we carve out that time. And we're, you know, we're on the phone constantly throughout the day, but making sure that, you know, there are certain days and times throughout the week that are sacred, that are our time to do, you know, what we need to do to connect physically, emotionally, mentally um, is all the more important. So, yeah. Yeah. And we're not, you know, and we're not perfect in that. It's like, I don't want to hold myself up as some relationship expert, but, you know, we have been together for a long time and we've learned a lot, you know, about how to navigate these kinds of situations. And, and, you know, we've been doing this now since September. So, you know, it's still pretty new, but I would say that so far, I think we're doing a pretty good job. You're getting in a groove, you know, um, what I what my impression is of your marriage is that you both really respect each other and want each other to just be truly happy. And it comes across the way you talk about Julie, like you put her on a pedestal. And it's just a really refreshing and cool thing to hear. And um but I wonder too if like if that's true, does that does she feel any pressure from that? Uh, no, she's pretty good at claiming the pedestal. <laughs> she's awesome. Like, she's like, yeah, I'll be on the throne. That's cool. I'm, I'm comfortable <laughs> here. Um, you know, she's an amazing woman. She's been an incredible teacher to me. I have no problem putting her up on the pedestal. Like she's an amazing, um, uh, she can be an amazing kind of, um, uh, objective feedback loop for me. Like she, can see the real me and knows when, you know, I need a little bit of course correction and she's not afraid to tell me and I'll do the same for her. Um, and I think the thing, you know, one of the things that's really served us is we're both independent people and, you know, it's, she doesn't need me to be all up in her kitchen, you know, physically like every minute of the day, like she's got a lot going on in her life. And, um, and so it's not necessarily, the quantity of our, you know, our proximity to each other. But when we are together, um, it's important that it's, that it's, uh, that it's quality time that we're, you know, totally focused on each other, that we're not distracted and, and completely present. Do, uh, do you both have a similar philosophy on parenting? 
I would say overall, yes, but there's differences beneath that. You know, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative household where education was super important and it was very structured and, and, and traditional. Um, Julie was the youngest of a bunch of kids. And by the time she came around, her parents were kind of over it. And she grew up in Alaska and she would just go off <laughs> into the woods with her friends for hours and hours and hours. Her parents had no idea what she was doing. So she got into a lot of trouble. Um, all of her shenanigans happened at a very early age and she kind of got over it. By the time she went to college, she was ready to be a mature adult. Whereas when I went to college, that's when all hell broke loose. And, <laughs> you know, so, so she went from a very unstructured environment and I came from a very controlled environment. And so I think that's reflected in our parenting styles. Um, you know, but I think the tension between the two uh, allows us to parent from a place of um, perspective and happy medium. So if we have a kid who's struggling with something, you know, my reaction to that might be different from hers, but we can communicate about it and come up with um, a unified approach to how to deal with it. And I think that the differences in our perspective help us come up with a happy, you know, like a place in the middle um, that hopefully is serving our kids best. But again, it's this is a very imperfect science. Well, art. yeah, it sounds a lot like how Tim and I are. If you really mm. like drill it down, he's stricter and I'm easier. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, or be, he provides the same yeah, structure yeah. versus emotional comfort, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, but it comes together to create a more well-rounded approach, which I I think works. It can yeah. be frustrating sometimes, though. Yeah. You know, yeah. I I actually wanted to kind of uh, add another level to this because it's something that I read about in your book um, with your dad or your parents. And I was thinking about, so my daughter's seven, you know, we were never going to have kids, but because we were selfish triathletes. But then we turned about 40 and it was like, oh, my gosh, is this it for the rest of our life sitting on the couch? <laughs> like, maybe it's time. So, um, you know, we had a kid and it's completely changed my life. A hundred percent. I mean, everything changed the day she was born. Um, and literally the day she was born, because the day before she was born, I did two workouts. Right, I don't, I've never did. done two workouts again since she was born in a day. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh -huh. But, um, you know, when you were really struggling with alcoholism and needing to get help and your dad finally had to do that really difficult, like, we're got to cut you off, son, kind of conversation, mm -hmm. you know, that really, it's hard to read and it's hard to hear, but it sounded like it had to happen. And I was thinking about it on both ends. Like, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about like looking back on that, how you felt about it. And if, if you could ever do that to your kid. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's easy, you know, because I work with a lot of people in recovery, people that are struggling with drugs and alcohol or, you know, talking to family members of, you know, people that are struggling. And it's easy to kind of clearly see the path forward and give advice like, hey, you cannot be codependent in this. You've got to like draw the line and like, you know, say the hard things and, you know, step away like my dad did. But 
the prospect of having to actually do that with your own child, you know, I, I you know, I don't know. Like how I, I can't think of, I can think of few things more difficult than something like that. Um, in my case, it was true. It was what I needed to hear, and it was kind of the final, you know, bomb that allowed me to, you know, snap through whatever denial I was clinging to and objectively assess, you know, the, in, in an honest way, the truth of my, of my situation. And I think that fueled my willingness and desire to, to get well and to change my ways. Everybody has a different bottom with these things. Um, but I think, you know, being confronted with in an, in a very honest way with how you're behaving can be a very powerful motivator for somebody else. But yeah, I mean, you know, should one of my children have, you know, a similar path and then I'm confronted with the choice of having to have that conversation, like, you know, how, uh, you know, what would I do? I don't know. You know, I don't think anybody can say unless they're in that situation and I have nothing but compassion. Um, there's no right way to handle these things and certain people require, you know, a different, strategy um, but I can just say that that worked with me and my relationship with my dad is great now I just I was on the phone with him the other night like we're super we're closer than we ever have been um, but we had to go through that to get to this place um, where now we can be honest with each other yep that's what it is it's honesty mm -hmm. um, okay let's let's shift a little bit let's talk about um, turning 50 so, mm. I, you know, I was talking to Tim about, you know, interviewing you and he was like, I'm really interested because we're coming, I'm 47, Tim's 48, yeah. you know, it's, we're coming up on that milestone. And he was like, you know, he kind of made a big deal out of turning 50. <laughs> so yeah. was it all that, you know, was it, <clears throat> was it a, as big a deal as you made it? Or was it just like a goal or something to aim for to, to become the fittest you'd ever been? I think... Uh, well, in truth, I didn't, I don't think 50 was that big of a deal for me, but I know it's a mile. It was kind of a milestone and I hadn't raced or done anything competitive in many years. And, and part of that is because I was trying to create a sustainable business out of what I do to support my family. And as you know, it's like, even when your impulse is to go out and train 20 hours a week, like maybe that's not such a good idea, uh, when you're trying to make a living. Um, but I thought 50 would be an interesting moment to get fit again and and you know dip my toe back in and do a race because it would serve the kind of message that i'm putting out in the world which is you can be fit and healthy and active you know age is just a number all these kinds of things that i talk about seem to make sense in the context of being 50 because when i grew up a 50 year old man i mean that was you know the idea of a 50 year old doing anything athletic was preposterous True. <laughs> so True. I, I just wanted to have fun with it, you know, and I and I did. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, when I turned 50, I didn't really feel any different physically or mentally, emotionally. I'm now 52. I will tell you this. 52 is where suddenly like 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 everything kind of shifted a little bit. Like my hair started going gray, like really fast all of a sudden. And like my back is stiff in the morning. Like I got a lot of stuff like I got to look at right now that I can't take for granted that I wasn't really dealing with when I turned 50. Um, so for me, 52 seems more meaningful <laughs> than 50. Um, but in terms of 
of turning 50, I wanted to celebrate that and use it, you know, in a public forum to kind of demonstrate that, um, you know, that when you shift your thinking around age, that, that, you know, you're capable of doing more than you allow yourself to believe. So I made this decision to share all my workouts on social media and, and be transparent. I'm going to do this race and, you know, maybe I'll do terrible. And, you know, ultimately I don't think I did that great. I didn't have a great race or whatever, but it was super fun to, to share that and to make it a community oriented event. Um, maybe share a little bit about the race. Um, so the race was the Otillo Swim Run World Championships, which is this amazing race that's held every year uh, in the archipelago off the coast of Stockholm. And over the course of a day, you swim and run 75 kilometers across something like 32 islands or something like that. I think there's like 52 transitions. You do the whole thing in a wetsuit with your running shoes on. You swim across these inlets and climb up on these rocks and run across these little islands and jump back in the water and the water's freezing and the day that we did it it was pouring rain i mean like sideways rain the wind was insane the chop in the water was unbelievable there was one swim section where the swells were like five or six feet high it was bananas uh but it was super epic and that was what um, Chris Health, my coach and my teammate, you know, we're looking for out of the experience. One, there's a couple things about this race that make it unique. First of all, you do it with a partner that you're supposed to never be more than 10 meters away from, although I'm sure we violated that rule many times over the course of the day. Uh, and, um, and they have this incredible, like no litter policy, like you will get disqualified if you drop a gel pack on the land. It's all about like respecting and preserving the beauty of these islands. And it was a really remarkable, incredible experience. Um, I don't think that I was prepared, like Chris and I had never done a swim run race before. And this was the world championship event. All the teams <laughs> there had like done many of these races. They had to like accumulate points to get there. Uh, and we just got a pass, you know, like we, we were a discretionary entry into the race. So we had no idea what we were doing and it was much more difficult <laughs> than I thought it was going to be in the sense that it was more like an obstacle course race. Like I thought we would do these swims and then we would just be trail running, but we're literally bouldering. Like we're climbing over these massive rocks <laughs> and like so traipsing awesome. through these like <laughs> bogs where the water was like up to our knees. And, I mean oh the first, God. so the, the gun goes off and you run like a kilometer. That's kind of like a warm up to the first swim. And the first swim is like a kilometer and a half. It's like the longest swim. And then when you get to the other side of this inlet, you run around the edge of this Island, but you're running in like, four inches of water with like river stones that are slippery underneath. Oh my God. And I'm like, I don't know. Like I've just been running in trails in Southern California. Like, I don't know how to do it. And the, the guys that are good are like ballet dancers on these things wearing like, you know, these shoes with suit there have super traction on them. Um, but one guy fell and cracked his head like right away and was out like, and I'm like, Whoa, you know, <laughs> oh my I God. fell down. I fell down like a hundred times. Like, I, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm, I, I don't so know what funny. I'm doing. Yeah. So <laughs> it was fun, you know, but it, and we were like middle of the Packers on this race, which was fine. I mean, Chris, you know, my teammate, he would have finished hours, you know, faster. I mean, Chris I was is such a badass. Chris totally. is incredible. Yeah, totally. 
Oh my God, that is so funny. That I love it. So <laughs> So then I'll just tell you this. Chris went back and did it this past year again. And he's and it was like apparently it was like seventy degrees. There was no wind. It was oh my- sunny. It was sunny out and the water was like a lake. He was like, I didn't even realize I was in the same place that we were the year before. Um, oh but my God. I, but it was great. Like you know, <laughs> One of the reasons I wanted to do it is I hate cold water, you know, so I was like, all right, well, it's going to be cold. It's going to be like, like the thing is you do it, you're, you're swimming. It's so cold, but then you start to finally get used to it and kind of warm up and then you, and then you're running again. And then, you know, when you're running, you finally get warm by the time you've run like, and then you're back in the water again. So, and you're running, you got gravel in your shoes and you know, it's just like, well, I could stop and get all this sand and gravel out of my shoes, but then. 200 meters later it's going to be filled up again <laughs> and sounds... i of course had the wrong shoes and i'm slipping <laughs> on these rocks it's like it was you know comedic. you know what it was it was epic yeah it was totally it was totally epic and it was so memorable like I'm la- I'm laughing over here so hard. Like I I just am trying to imagine you guys bumbling through it and like having no idea and all these other people like shaking their heads at you. Oh my god, those guys. And uh but you did it. And it's hilarious. And I'm sure you were like almost crying at times. <laughs> it sounds so funny. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, and the the challenge for Chris was being patient with me, like letting go of cuz like look, when you're a when you're a alpha, you know, endurance athlete, you don't want to be dragged down by another person. It's an individual sport. So this tested and challenged his, you know, attachment to his own capabilities. He had to let go of that and just enjoy the day. Uh, and for me, I'm dealing with the guilt and the shame that I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with him. I didn't sleep well the night before. Like I didn't, you know, you know, when you have those nights and you just don't sleep at all and you wake up and you just feel like you've been partying in Las Vegas for a week. Like that's how I felt when I woke up. I was like, all right, well, I guess this race is happening. You know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> That's um, how I slept every night before a race, a big race yeah. at least. Horrible. Or when you have it when you have a baby. That's that, what happens. Yes. Too. You basically wake up and you feel like you're gonna puke. Exactly. Um let's uh let's talk a little bit about water, about swimming. About I mean, you grew up swimming at Curl. That was a badass yeah. swim club. I think I, I swam at a with a team in Chicago called Westmont Swim Club, and we used to go to junior nationals, and that's when we would run across Curl, you know, uh-huh, right. and uh, just a powerhouse. And you were you were a star. I mean, as admittedly like awkward in other parts of your life as a kid, like this was it. Like something about the water and rich roll is a match made in heaven, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I. I would dispute that I was a star, but I would say that I was all in on swimming. You know, I was, I was (laughs) very much an awkward kid. Swimming was the one thing that I felt like I had some aptitude in and I just went for it and like doubled down, you know, and, and I was one curl like Rick, Rick curl, who's now in jail. We can talk about that. if you want. We don't have to, but actually I didn't know know that. Why oh, is, he, didn't know that. is it one of the, is it like a molestation with a girl or something? Y- yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. We could talk about that or not. Um, that's up to you. It's a little bit askance, but it's kind of relevant. I mean, I would say this. Um, I, got, I started getting serious about swimming when I was like 14, 15 years old. Rick Curl was a coach who originally was coaching at 
a team called Solitar, which was a big club team in the Washington, D.C. area. He broke away with a couple coaches and started the Curl Swim Club. And I was one of the, you know, the first um, swimmers when he originated that club team. And at the time, there were a lot of Olympic trials qualifiers, national team members, uh, you know, incredible swimmers. Um, Susan O'Brien was a big star at the time. And it was pretty cool to be part of this um, group of swimmers who were pretty dominant on the national scene. And I wasn't quite there yet, but I wanted desperately to be that good. Um, and I realized pretty early that I wasn't super gifted on the talent spectrum, but I had this capacity to suffer and I knew how to work hard. And I just kept like doubling down on the work ethic. And, you know, I became that annoying kid who was like the first person to get to morning workout <laughs> and you know, super reliable and was doing crazy butterfly sets that no one else would do to kind of bridge that talent deficit gap. And I was able to do that. Um, so by the time I was 17 and 18 years old, like I was nationally ranked and, you know, was getting recruited at colleges and all of that kind of good stuff. But my first real girlfriend, um, was when I was a senior in high school. Her name was Kelly Davies. She swam for curl. She was a couple of years younger than me and she was unbelievably talented. She was uh, she was one of the, the, I don't know if she had a number one world ranking, but she was in the top handful of 200 butterflyers in the world. Um, and she uh, ultimately went to the University of Texas and kind of had a meltdown with an eating disorder and a lot of personal problems. And it came to light that these were all a function of trauma that she had suffered as a result of being in you know being in a uh in a quote-unquote relationship with rick curl since she was 13 years old. oh god this was going on while i was dating her unbeknownst to me and it was a very different time this is uh a, you know an era in which we were not clued into uh sexual abuse to the extent that we are now um and looking back on it retrospectively, it's easy to see all the indicia that, of what was actually happening. Um, but at the time, like none of us in the group kind of really knew what was happening other than that she kind of got favoritism and preferential treatment from Rick. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it's a long story, but, you know, it all came out and, you know, Kelly is fine now. She's married and, you know, has kids and has gone through what she's gone through to be a healthy person. Um, but it came out um, very late because this was all going on in the late in the mid to late 80s mm -hmm. um, but he's now I think he's still in jail as a result and so Curl Swim Club has now been rebranded I think it's called the Capital Swim Club or something like that Wow, you um, know, but I swam underneath Rick for years and years and years and you know I considered him like a father figure to me and it's and and this was my you know my first girlfriend and it's unimaginable to me that this went on and then after uh, he got caught. It was like originally it was settled in court. It didn't all come back out until much later, but he continued to coach for many, many years. Wow. I mean, this brings up so much. A, it's like the ultimate betrayal on all levels because like you said, father figure and it's your girlfriend. And I mean, it's so fucked up on so many, mm -hmm. so many sides. And then it makes me think about us as parents and you know we're pretty hyper vigilant now and like really have our eyes and ears open to 
anything anyone might say or do. Like if my, if Wilder, my daughter comes home and she's like, my butt hurts. I'm like, who, what was, what happened? You know, like you're trying to drill down into someone touch you, what's going on. Um, so yeah, different time, but holy cow, that's crazy. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about swimming though and how, you know, obviously like after all this, you went and swam at Stanford and, Mm -hmm. uh, you went through some struggles, so you didn't swim all four years, but like if anyone goes over to your Instagram, I think yesterday you posted some badass photo and said, I just swam 4,400. Like, <laughs> there's certain things that I feel like we were each made to do. And, like, once you find it, there's this immediate comfort. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is my home. Like, mm-hmm. I will always be comfortable in water. Like, if you see a pool, you know exactly what to do. You pick up a kickboard. You put on some goggles. You ask someone if they'll circle swim. You, like, do your workout and whatever. Other people, that's not their thing. They would, they're intimidated by that. Like, mm-hmm. is that... Is that what swimming is for you? Is it like, is it one thing, something that you just were made to do? Um, I certainly feel at home in the pool. Uh, it's almost like this womb-like feeling, like it feels comfortable. I feel protected. I feel safe. You know, I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, and I think that's what keeps me going back i also think there's a there's a sense of control uh you know if you're coming from chaos in your life like when you're in the pool the parameters are very binary it's like okay i'm in the water like all the pools are the same length there's a pace clock like i know i do these repeats it's the same wherever i go and how fast i go is up to me and it's all very measurable and there's something I don't know, weirdly calming and satisfying about that. But beyond that, on a spiritual level, I would say that, yeah, it, I feel like it's a natural environment for me. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine, um, you know, not continuing to do it for the rest of my life. In fact, I shared it on Instagram yesterday, like a picture of me diving in the pool saying, you know, at 52, I, I still love it as much as I did when I was eight years old. And for me, that's, that's the victory. Like that's the win. Like, can you find something in your life that, that, that gives you that feeling that it did when you were a child? Um, and swimming is certainly that for me. And I, I think that's a amazing thing for people to be aware of. And when they start to feel that feeling sink into it, don't, you know, explore it, see what that thing could be for them. Yeah. It's also humbling and it's, it's a truth teller. Like, Look, at 52, you know, I, I, I have to, like, avert my gaze from the pace clock because I swim, you know, all right, I'm doing a set of hundreds. Like, you know, I'm used to, I, you know, I'm thinking, like, the way I used to think when I was 18. Well, that must have been a 56 or a 54. It's like, no, that was a 110. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, so, you know, the relationship has to change and you have to be okay with, like, letting go of, of you know, this, this, this sort of halcyon days of what you think you should be doing or what it should look like. Yeah. The shoulds, you know, I know you, uh, don't have all day to chat with me. I, I have a little, a little more, if you can hang on a little longer. Cool. Cool. So, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking too, a little more like kind of going back to, 
Oh, it's just a concept. It has to do with sports. I learned it in sports, and I wonder if you adhered to it at all. But I call it willing something to happen. You know, and in sports, it might be more like a visualization. You know, you would, I don't know if your coach has had you do visualizing your race from start to finish and whatever, Mm -hmm. or more like, I guess it came up for me when I was, reading about how you first saw Julie at yoga <laughs> and, oh, yeah. uh-huh. and you were like, I'm going to marry that girl. And in my head, I was like, he willed it to happen. Like uh-huh. it happened, right? You see something, you want it to happen. You see it happen. It happens, right? I don't know. Tell me about that in your life. Is that the only time that ever happened for you? Um, I have a different perspective on that. I think, you know, one of the things you learn in recovery is that, um, at least speaking for myself, like I'm the architect of all of, of every disaster that I've suffered in my life. Like I have to take responsibility for that. And a lot of my, you know, errant behaviors and actions are a result of, you know, something we say in the rooms, which is self will run riot. Like you can have an unhealthy relationship with your willpower, your self will. And I was always somebody who believed and was reared to believe that success is a function of the extent to which you are willing to, you know, focus and dedicate and will a result into being. And I believed that every success that I had had, whether it was in the pool or in the classroom or what have you, was a direct result of my effort, like my own personal uh, uh, discipline, self-will, right? And what I've come to understand is that that is not, that there's, that there's an aspect to that which is an illusion. And part of my own personal growth and evolution has been uh, detaching from my self-will and trying to, um, you know, sort of fall into the flow of life a little bit more. It's, it's, it's like a surrender or a letting go. So when I saw Julie, uh, it wasn't like I lasered in on her and said, I'm going to make this happen. Instead, it was like a knowing. It was like an intuition or a deep knowing inside of me that it was almost a predestined thing. It wasn't that I had to do anything. It was almost like I, I didn't, I, by letting go and allowing it created the space for that to happen. Ooh, and that's, yeah. that's the mentality um, from which I try to create now, not from a place of like, you know, suffering and focus and work ethic. And like, if you, if you aren't in pain, then you're not working hard enough, but rather, how can I find the joy in this? And what if it's easy? And what happens, like, how, as uncomfortable as it is to like, let go and allow, like, I've come to believe that that's a better place from which to create. Um, it's a more uh, spacious and open um, uh, kind of mentality to adopt that I think provides uh, for an even greater outcome that can exceed the limitations of, 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 of our own you know, expectations and, and goals that we set for ourselves. So I don't know if that makes sense, but... It makes total like ritual, philosophical, intellectual, emotional sense. That's a little woo-woo. I get. I understand. Um, but, but I get it. I do I get think it. When you're, 
when you're a type A athlete, like, and, and you're in an individual sport, like triathlon or swimming, it's like, push, push, push. It's up to you. Like, how hard are you willing to work? Will you go the extra mile? There's a grind mentality that gets built into that. And now it's like, what would it feel like if you let go of all of that and just surrendered and allowed things to happen? That doesn't mean you don't work hard, but you're not resisting what is like, it doesn't come from that, that like willful place. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it don't. It makes total sense. And you know, I throughout this interview, you've talked a lot or mentioned quite a few times the 12 steps. And, you know, I, I uh, also had issues with alcohol abuse and, and stopped drinking over 10 years ago, but I didn't mm. go through a program. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like well, that program really helped create a solid foundation for you that you, you still use a lot of, a lot of it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, look, I have no judgments on the different ways in which people get sober or change their behavior. Um, but for me, you know, 12 step Alcoholics Anonymous like saved my life. And it's not something I did in the past and have moved on from. It's still very much front and center, you know, my number one priority like stay sober, help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. And, you know, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm very wedded to the, sober community here where I live in Los Angeles. And, you know, that, you know, yeah, I do the podcast and I'm a dad and I'm a husband and all of that. And I, and I live my life in kind of a public forum, but outside of that, really what's going on is, is, um, is trying to be, you know, a sober man and contribute to the sober community. And that's something I don't, you know, that's, that's not for the public, you know, to see that's just, something that happens that's you know it's the most important part of my life outside of my family Um, and I need it to stay sober and I take it very seriously it's interesting because being sober and using that word even can be really polarizing and and being vegan is polarizing like a lot of things that are incredibly healthy meditating that's polarizing you know people don't like to hear about it they don't want to talk about it they feel like you're lecturing or maybe they're looking at it as mm-hmm. like it's a little bit of a mirror and they're they're sitting there thinking just does he think i have an alcohol problem because i'm having my <laughs> second beer yeah. You know, right. so it's really interesting because, you know, that is a huge part of you, but you, and you talk about it a lot in the book for sure. And, and you mention it, you're not hiding from it, but it's, so it's also interesting to me that those really amazing things in life can be so polarizing to other people that they don't even want to hear it. Well, people get really defensive, which is why, and these things are emotional, uh, which is why I don't proselytize. And that's something that I learned in the rooms. Like, we're not here to give advice. We're here to share our, our experience. And that's all I do. Um, but yeah, if you're, you know, if people know you're sober, then they're self-conscious about drinking around you. If they know you're vegan, then they're like, is it okay for me to eat meat around you? Like, I'm cool with all of that. Like, I don't care. So it's more about where they're coming from than where I'm at. And, you know, I don't sit in judgment of anybody else's uh, life or choices or experiences because I don't live in your shoes. You know, I think it would be very presumptuous of me to have an opinion on, you know, the decisions that you've made about how to live your life when I don't know what led to those decisions. So I just try to, you know, share my own perspective from my own personal experience. And if that resonates with people and they want to hear more, learn more, I'm happy to share more about it. Uh, But it's super important to me that, 
that, you know, uh, that people understand that, that I'm not coming from that place of judgment. Yeah, I think that's, I think they do get that from you, but now we're reminding them. So there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I know when I uh, stopped drinking alcohol, I switched over to a higher use of coffee, which uh-huh. I think you may have too. I loved your uh, story about like, I'll go get the sick shot, <laughs> you know, right? Whole, yeah. you know, shot in the dark with six of them. Um, but uh, you don't drink coffee anymore, do you? Well, no, that, that. That I will say is an on-off thing. Like I've gotten off coffee and I've gone back on coffee. Like you know, I wish I could tell you I'd never had a sip of caffeine or coffee ever again since I wrote that book. That is not true. But <laughs> I have tried to modulate, moderate my caffeine intake. So I have like one cup of coffee in the morning, and I don't drink like I don't drink coffee all day or throughout the afternoon or anything like that. I just have one cup in the morning. Because there's a lot of passion about our caffeine too. Let me just say. Oh man! Well, let's just <laughs> let's just call it what it is. I mean, it's a straight up performance enhancing drug. It like, is, <laughs> you know. And I mean, you know, I'll if I'm going to work out in the morning, if I have a cup of coffee before I go, it's going to be a better workout. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't go to the bathroom without a cup of coffee. All right, there you go. <laughs> and we went there. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, you know, Rich, how do you define yourself right now today? Oh, wow. Um, I never know how to answer this question. Uh, I, you know, when you go, when you travel and you uh, like have to go through customs and places and write down your occupation, like I never know what to write. I choose something different every time. Um, but if I had to describe like who I am, right now i mean honestly like i think of myself predominantly as a dad and a husband because that's what i spend most of my time doing um beyond that i'm a you know i'm a writer i'm a i'm a podcast host i'm a somebody who believes in um the potential that we all have to do and be better and someone who takes seriously uh the opportunity that I've been given because I have this platform to try to use it for positive good with respect to individuals living more fulfilling, more purposeful lives and for doing what's best for the planet for not just ourselves, but our children and our children's children. It's like you've definitely transcended, you know, think back to who you were many years ago and now you're, You've got a greater purpose for sure. And I think that's why people love listening to your podcast and they love the people you interview. You're, uh, you just, you draw great energy to you as well. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. So what's up next? You are a big goal setter. We know that. Do you have a big athletic goal or any other goal coming up? Um, I am in the process of trying to figure out what I want to do athletically. I have a couple ideas that I'm not ready to quite talk about right now and a couple goals that um are uh turning into something real at the moment so i i don't want to say anything yet about them uh for superstitious reasons as much as anything else but um part of this year for me has been about um well let me say this like the things, the, the, the habits and the practices that I've adopted to kind of get to the place that I'm at right now, 
are not what's going to take the endeavors that I'm interested in to the next level. Like I've, I've very much been a bit of a solopreneur with some freelance help on the side. And now this thing has grown to a point where I really need more help and I have to ask for help and I have to let go of my perfectionist standards and my control issues and allow other people to step in and help me. So I have more free time to work on other projects because the podcast has become so all consuming um, and it prevents me from working on another book or doing other things that I think can help spread the message. So my goal for this year is to focus on team building and letting go so that I can focus my energies on projects outside of the podcast. Awesome. All right. So when you get ready to announce those job openings, we'll spread the word. I'm sure yeah, we're going right. to have yeah. some good interviews there. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. Well, Rich, you have really given me a lot of time today. I'm going to ask you the final question I ask everyone who's come on the show. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Let's see. I'm taking a moment to think about this because I don't want to just give you a flip answer um repeat it to me one more time let me make sure i really understand okay if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way what would it be this may sound trite but the truth is 99.99% of what concerns us, what occupies our mind, the past, the the future, future spinning, uh, the BS that's going on at work. It's not important. It really isn't important. We're here for such an incredibly short period of time. You know, two generations from now, nobody is going to remember you no matter what you did. And the more I'm able to remind myself of that, the more I'm able to tap into that gratitude that's so difficult for me to access and be present with whatever I'm doing and to focus on the things that are most important, which is my relationship with my kids and my wife and trying to put um, something good out into the world and all the the kind of um, details that I generally occupy myself with fall by the wayside. So um, that would be my words of wisdom to people out there to try to be more present in your life. And meditation is a great tool for doing that, for helping you um, parse the important from the temporal uh, and get really clear on the things that are important to you in your life so you can spend more time and energy developing them nicely done i hope that was helpful (laughs) that was you you rocked it rich thanks so much you are awesome all right you guys what'd you think i think rich is way too much fun he's everything you imagine when you hear him interviewing people He's deep and passionate and honest and self-deprecating, but also hilarious and real. 
while somehow being a bit of a romantic, like he's the kind of guy you want to hang out with more often than once in a lifetime Skype interview. So that's my next goal. Hang out with Rich Roll more often. <laughs> Seriously, I love this interview and a few parts really stand out to me. You couldn't see me, but I was almost crying when he described his Otillo race experience. I could just imagine him sucking it up and being both like totally tough and sort of a baby at the same time. Like it's just, she's just such a great storyteller. Uh, the other thing I loved is that he so easily admits his faults and embraces them and shares his process of working on them. I think we can all relate to having things that we want to change, parts of ourselves that we want to change, that we know we need to work on every single day. And I appreciated that he was able to call that out. In the end, here's my takeaway. Rich role truly makes you feel special. That whole philosophy that people don't really remember what you say, but how you make them feel, that is true with Rich. <laughs> if you are not already a subscriber to his podcast, then get on it because you need to get some of this feeling. It's the Rich Roll podcast. Pretty easy. You will not regret tuning in and hey, what is it? What does it cost you? Nothing. Just get on there and listen to a few. And if you don't have a copy of his book, Finding Ultra, which I'm staring at right now, um, get it. Get on that too. I got mine on Amazon. Uh, so, you know, in the end, here's the deal. None of it really matters because as Rich says, the truth is that 99.99% of what concerns us, what occupies our minds is not important. So figure out what's truly important and focus on those things. And so I say, hey, listening to my podcast and listening to Rich's podcast are really important. They might help you figure out what's important. Oh my gosh, is this mind blowing? So anyway, this brings us all the way back around to this good point, which is, all right, everyone, what day is it? And the answer is, it's the best day of my life. The same goes for you, for me, for Rich, for everyone out there. Whew. All right, then. It's been a long one and it's been fun. So let's get on with it. Let's get on with living. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. So have a great workout and I'll see you next week.